are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Well, good afternoon, everybody. My name is David Guzik, and if you're joining us on today's question and answer video, you can see that I'm back in my home on the west coast of Southern California. Very pleased to be back home. The last couple of weeks, I've done this live Q&A live from Israel, from a couple hotel rooms, because it would be 10 o'clock at night, Israeli time, when I was doing those. Now back here in California, it is 12 noon, and I don't know what time it is wherever you're at, but uh, I'm very pleased that you could join us. And I know some people join us on a live audience, other people join us on uh, recorded later on, but we're so pleased that you could join me. If we've never been introduced before, I'm a pastor, a teacher, a Bible commentator. I suppose that uh, the biggest reach I have, if you want to use that expression, is a online Bible commentary that I have that's absolutely free and available in several different languages because we have very active translation projects. But uh, most people who use it around the world use it in English. And we're very pleased to have a lot of people who do that week after week, day after day, month after month. I do enjoy getting together once a week whenever possible on these Thursdays to have this question and answer time. And normally... We begin with a question that has come in. Maybe it's a leftover question because we can't get to all the questions that come in on any particular Thursday. Uh, other times we get one from social media or from a comment on a YouTube video, whatever it is. But we pick a lead question that we think other people will be interested in. And that's what we're going to start out with today. But before we do get into the lead question, let me just make another welcome to our wonderful TWR360 audience. TWR360 is Transworld 360, Transworld Radio 360. This is the marvelous online ministry of that long-standing ministry, Transworld Radio, that has been reaching the world with the gospel and with uh, good biblical teaching uh, over shortwave radio for many decades, and now their online presence is also doing a great work. So our lead question for today is, should Christians fear Islam? And it comes from Gabriel via Facebook. Uh, this is Gabriel's question. Uh, they also gave their name as Tolotra. Uh, so she says, uh, Tolotra, uh, my name is Tolotra or Gabriel, and I have one question. Islam is the fastest growing religion and is estimated to be the number one in a few years should I be afraid? Well, Tolotra or Gabriel, whichever name you'd prefer me to go by, thank you so much for your question. Uh, I'm very pleased that you're tuning in, and I hope this answer is a benefit to you. So let's take a look at the question. You're simply saying, Islam is the fastest growing religion. It's estimated to be the largest religion in the world in a few years should you or should Christians generally be afraid? Well, according to, and here's a phrase I picked up on my Israel trip, uh, I think it's appropriate, according to Rabbi Nick, uh, Wikipedia, or you could say Rabbi Google, uh, here's the st statistics. The number of Christians worldwide is estimated to be 2.38 billion, almost 2.4 billion, and the number number of Muslims worldwide is estimated to be 1.9 billion. And you have to admit those are large, large numbers, no matter how you slice it. So there are almost half a billion, that's about 500 million, more Christians in the world than Muslims, but the gap is closing. Now, let me do a few explanations here. We do recognize that those numbers, 2.4 billion, 1.9 billion, those numbers don't reflect the number of true believers in either one of those religions. Truly, many in those numbers are nominal, that is, in name only, Christians or Muslims. Friends, I want you to know, I don't believe that there are actually 2.4 billion born-again believing Christians on earth, no matter which tr Christian tradition they may come from. 
because I do believe that there are born again, genuine believers within the Roman Catholic Church, within Orthodox churches, within Protestant churches, within other smaller groups, such as Coptic believers and such like that all over the world. But, but obviously, um, belonging to a Christian tradition, being born into a Christian family, if you were to check that box Christian on a survey, it doesn't necessarily mean that you are actually a born again, a true Christian. And the same would be true for Islam as well. There are many nominal Christians or Muslims or whatever religion within those headings. Okay, we recognize that first of all. I would also say that I would think, and I don't have any statistics to prove this, but it's just my thought. You can take it for what you will. I would think that there are many more nominal or in name only Muslims than Christians. Why? Well, because fear and the threat of punishment is often used in Islam to keep people in the fold. Now, I I do want to say this also happens among Christians, but I just believe it to be much less common among Christians than among Muslims. I, I wonder what would happen if prominent imams, leaders uh, in the Muslim world, around the world, what would happen if they would say this? Um, My dear Islamic friend, we want you to follow Allah. We want you to be a Muslim only if you choose to be. So you you have the choice whether you want to be Muslim, Christian, Jewish, Hindu, uh, or secular. You may choose and face no, you know, anathema, no rejection from our community. I wonder what would happen if they did that. My feeling is that millions upon millions of Muslims would leave their faith. I believe, and again, I don't know how you would prove anything like this statistically, but I just simply believe it's it's been my observation that there are probably millions upon millions of Muslims in the Islamic faith simply out of fear of the consequences of leaving the Muslim faith. Now, what about these numbers and the growth of Islam? It is true, if you take a look at Rabbi Wikipedia, it is true that Islam is said to be the fastest growing religion in the world. But this is because of demographics. The fact of the matter is, is that Muslims tend to have many more children than Christians do. Again, according to Wikipedia, Islam is the fastest growing religion, but because of their birth rates. Worldwide, Muslims have on average 3.1 children per woman, and Christians have on average 2.7 children per woman. Again, these are global figures. Now, this explains the growth of Islam. It's due to Muslims having many children, It is not due to conversions to Islam. Again, according to data that you can find online, it's said that the number of conversions to Islam is not greater than the number of those who leave Islam. In other words, it's either equal or more people leave Islam than are converted to Islam. So, we just understand that the Rapid growth of Islam is not due to persuasion. It's not due to people saying, I want to become a Muslim. It's due to large Muslim families. The fastest growing religion by conversion is Christianity. More people choose to become Christians than any other religion in the world right now. And this is especially true of Pentecostal Christianity, which continues to see large gains in what is sometimes called the global south that would be predominantly Africa and South America. Now, a a few things to keep in mind. Uh, If we think that the number of Muslims is growing in the world, that it is the fastest growing religion, whether it is either from demographics and we sense that it's not from conversions, we should not seek to persecute Muslims We should not seek to outlaw Islam or to restrict it by force. I believe this is true under the simple principles of the golden rule and loving our enemy. Should we just review those just for a moment here? Remember what Jesus told us in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. He said, 
Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. And friends, I can just pretty categorically say that we don't like it when in Muslim nations, they're shutting down churches or they they won't allow churches to meet. We wish that in Muslim nations, they would give the freedom of religion for Christians to exercise their Christianity. Based on the golden rule, I think that in societies where there are more Christians, then the same accommodation should be given to Muslims. And remember also what Jesus said about loving our enemy. Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 43, again, this is in Jesus' great sermon on the mount. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even tax collectors do the same. True words, powerful words from Jesus. Look, even if we were to regard, and and I'm not saying we should regard, but even if we were to regard the Muslim as our enemy, and I'm not saying that we should, but even if we did, we're still to love them in the name of Jesus. This is what Jesus told us to do. Now, let me say, when Muslims break the law with murders, honor killings, mutilation of young women, then they should be punished by the civil authorities, not by the church, but by the civil authorities. And this should happen according to Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 5, which talks about the responsibility of the civil government under God to carry out justice. Now, let me say very strongly, the same would be true for Christians who broke the law in the same ways. We're not talking about selective uh, enforcement. If a Christian were to murder a Muslim in the name of Christianity, they should be prosecuted to the full extent of the law, just as a Muslim who would murder a Christian or anybody for that matter in the name of his law should be punished in the same way. So when we say love our enemies, when we say uh, pray for them in the golden rule, we're not talking about carrying out the principles of justice that God wants to be carried out in a culture, in a society. Now, spiritually speaking, a big problem for Islam is the way that Muslim radicals keep murdering Christians. Now, I'm not saying that Christians are the only targets of Muslim radicals, but they are certainly a predominant target of Muslim radicals. And we hear a lot about this in parts of Africa, sometimes Asia, sometimes the Middle East. Friends, it's very distressing, is it not? Where it seems like every week or every few weeks, you hear about some massacre of some village somewhere by Muslim radicals upon Christians. Now, when Muslims do this, they persecute Jesus himself and they invite the judgment of God upon them. This is a terrible thing. Now, I also want us to keep in mind this, and again, this is under this broad heading of the question, should we fear Islam? Always remember that the church, that is the community of Christians, it is not like a delicate greenhouse flower that needs all the right conditions to grow. You you know what a greenhouse is, don't you? You know, it's that glass or plastic building sometimes you have out in your back garden or something like that, or, or large industrial ones, of course, and in it they grow plants that can be somewhat delicate. You know, those plants need just the right soil and just the right temperature and just the right water, and so you keep it in a greenhouse that it can grow. Christianity or the church is not like that. We, we don't need all the right conditions to flourish. The church of Jesus Christ is like a stubborn weed in your back garden that can't be killed no matter how hard you try. It is, as has been said before, an anvil that has worn out many hammers. So, 
Uh, this is what we should remember. Now, what should we do? What, what should our attitude be towards Islam and other religions in the world such as this? Well, number one, we should pray just as Jesus told us to pray in Luke chapter 10. You remember that phrase, Luke chapter 10, uh, verse two, where Jesus said, the harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Friends, we should be very concerned for evangelism among the Muslim world. Now, th there is much evangelism to do, and we thank God, because I do, I personally know missionaries and Christian workers and just people living out their Christian life in Muslim majority nations, and they do it with a heart to see people one to Jesus Christ. There is much evangelism happening among the peoples of the Muslim world, but there's much to do. I, I believe God is moving among the Muslim world. And many are coming to faith, but the work that remains to be done is still, of course, massive. So we pray, we evangelize, but let me give you something else to do as well. We should encourage and bless Christian believers who are among Muslim-majority populations, especially those who face persecution. So, look, th there are Christians in the Arabic-speaking world. There are Christians in the Farsi or Persian-speaking world. There are Christians uh, in, in uh, other parts of Asia and such where there are large-majority Muslim populations, but there are believers in those places. We should pray for them. We should encourage them. We should bless them. We should support them. And I want you to know that I believe that, that we, uh, and when I say we, I mean our, our nonprofit enduring word, I, I think we have a role in that. I'd like to think that our work of translating the enduring word Bible commentary into Arabic and into Farsi is important. Friends, if you don't know about this, I'm very excited about it. And I, I just ask that you continue to pray because this is a multi-year project um, but you, you can take a look at websites like enduring uh, arabic.enduringword.com. That, that's our lead page or a portion of it uh, in Arabic. And if you wanted to see what the Gospel of Mark, commentary on Gospel of Mark, chapter one looks like in Arabic, there's just one example. It's our Bible commentary translated into Arabic. And let me say, I'm pleased that our viewership online continues to grow month by month more and more people are using the absolutely free Bible resources that are available to them on the Enduring Word website. Again, that would be arabic.enduringword.com. Or we also have, and I'm very excited about this, our recently launched website, farsi.enduringword.com. Uh, we are translating my Bible commentary into Farsi, and that is a significant work. There's a portion of the lead page. And here's, again, just a look uh, at the commentary on Mark chapter one, again in Farsi. We are very excited about these works. We ask that you pray for them. If you're interested in supporting them, look, that's always welcome. But what we most need is your prayers. We feel that God's blessing is upon this work. And we're very excited about that. And we know it's because people pray. So Gabriel or Talotra, don't be afraid of the growth of Islam. Trust and obey the Lord and we will see his victory won. Hey, we've read the last chapter of the book, haven't we? We've read the last chapter and we know that Jesus wins. We just want to be faithful along the way and do whatever we can to encourage believers who live in those Muslim majority populations. Hope that's been helpful for you, Gabriel, and uh, so glad that you could ask that question and that we could get to it. Okay, I'm going to take a look now at our live stream and take a look at the questions that have come in. If you could give me just a moment here to get set up. I need to do a few clicks to take a look at the questions that have come in. This is how it works. You type in the questions on our live stream. And then uh, that goes to our moderator, Devin. Hi, Devin. Glad you could join us. And Annie, thanks for helping out today. It goes to our moderator, Devin, and Devin uh, forwards them to me. 
I, I do just want to say one more thing before we get started on that. Uh, I had the most marvelous time this last weekend in Munich. Uh, on the way home from Israel, we stopped in Germany and I went to a wonderful church, ICF Munich. It, it is a remarkable church. They meet in a nightclub that they have to clean up after a full discotheque partying every Saturday night, and they clean it up in a couple hours on Sunday, and they have several associated congregations throughout Germany. But what I want to say is this wonderful church, ICF Munich, has spearheaded and organized the work of translating my Bible commentary into German. And there at the church, they were so gracious this last Sunday, we had the presentation, sort of the launch, if you will, of the New Testament commentary finished, completed, presented online. You can find it at de.enduringword.com or enduringword.de. We're so pleased for this. We pray that it reaches many German people, uh, German-speaking people who are just seeking good Bible resources. And we're excited to see what God will do with that. We're thankful for our partnership with ICF Munich and uh, their substantial work on the Old Testament commentary that is well along the way, and hopefully uh, in not too many more years, we'll be all up online as well. So thank you for that. Okay, let me get to the questions now that have come in on our live chat. Andromeda asked this question. I know that Jesus felt sad sometimes, but was that just part of his human nature? Does God the Father feel sad sometimes too? Andromeda, what you're talking about is you're talking about... um, human emotions being assigned to God. I think the fancy word for that is an anthropomorphism, where we assign human emotions to things that are not strictly human. Now, we we often do this with pets. We we look at a pet and say, oh, they're sad, they're happy. And and of course, as far as we can tell, that's what they are, but, but we really don't know exactly what's going on in their mind. Uh, so we assign, and, and it's a valid thing to do. We're not crazy for doing that. Well, the Bible does much the same thing in talking about God. The Bible talks about God's gladness, God's joy, God's, God's rejoicing, uh, God's uh, sorrow, God's uh, anger. And, and those are accurate as far as we can understand them. I don't know if we can ever truly understand all God is and all that he displays in his uh, person, in his emotions. But as much as we can understand it, those terms are communicated to us. So uh, we read that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. There's something about that. We read about God being grieved, the Holy Spirit being grieved. And so, yes, you could say that sorrow is an emotion that can be assigned to God, as long as we understand that we're doing the best to explain the divine in terms of the human. Now, there's no other way we can explain it. We're not God. We're not divine. So, it's valid for us to do the best we can. We just always need to keep it in mind that we're trying to explain the divine in terms of the human, and there's always going to be something that falls short with that. But yes, the Bible does describe God with those kind of emotions, and it's okay for us to understand it in those same terms. Okay, let me go to the next question from Horatio. Excuse me. Horatio asks, why does Jesus get upset with the others in the passage of the demon-possessed boy? Uh, For example, in Matthew chapter 17, verse 17, Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him here to me. Well, Horatio, I think the simple reason why Jesus exhibited being upset or frustration or whatever it is that you exactly want to call it. it, Notice it's in the words, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? Jesus had expected that his disciples should be further along. Now, again, we're not saying that Jesus didn't know the condition of his disciples. It's just here was a manifestation of it. Here was a manifestation, their inability to deal with this demon-possessed boy and actually deal with the demons possessing that boy. It should have been an opportunity for them to demonstrate that they were further along in their discipleship, further along in their faith. 
And there was something unbelieving in the disciples that explained their inability to deal with this. So really, that's the best way that I could explain it there. There there was a sense of frustration with Jesus and his disciples, by Jesus with his disciples, uh, because he just had, they had reason to be further along in their discipleship. You know, we we have some of this reflected in uh, the letter to the Hebrews, where he says, basically, uh, you should be further along in your faith than you are at this point. And friends, this is just true. Listen, there should be a general progress in our Christian life. We're not talking about Christian perfectionism, and we're not saying that the uh, course of a Christian's progress is just like this unbroken line of glory. But in general, you should have greater maturity in your relationship with God, your relationship with God now than five years ago. In general, again, I'm not saying that it's that it's like this rocket ship to glory with never any, you know, halts or pauses or regresses. But I'm just simply saying that there should be a general progress in our Christian life. If if the same things that cause you great fear and anxiety and unbelief, if they're the exact same today as they were five years, if there's been no growth in grace then that should be a little bit of an alarm signal for you. You shouldn't feel condemned, but you should just simply say, Lord, I want to grow in my relationship with you. And I think Jesus was expressing his legitimate frustration that there had not been enough, so to speak, of that displayed in the life and the faith of the disciples. I I heard somebody say something once, and uh, I hope this makes sense as I explain it. It'll depend on my ability to explain it well enough. He he said to somebody who had been a Christian for 20 years, but honestly was not very mature in the Christian life. He said, you haven't been a believer for 20 years. You've been a believer for two years, 10 times over. In other words, they had the maturity that you might expect of a believer after after two years, but they had it after 20 years. And so it was just sort of being stuck in a place. I understand how this general idea of Christian growth can be abused. It can be abused to teach an idea of Christian perfectionism. It can be abused to condemn people. It can be abused to act as if there's a spiritual elite in God's family. I understand the potential abuses, but I do also believe that the Bible just teaches that in general, there should be a sense of progression in our Christian life. Thank you for that question, Horatio. Next question comes from Susan. What is your understanding of the fruit of the tree of good and evil? What is the fruit? Well, um, Susan, I I can give you a biblical answer here. You ready for this? We don't know. We just don't know. Uh, You know, in sort of a popular conception, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was an apple. But the Bible nowhere says that. People just think that. They like to paint pictures of Eve with her hair tastefully draped, uh, holding an apple or eating an apple. Listen, that's just, the Bible nowhere says that. I've heard that some traditions have taught that it was an orange. I don't know, maybe so. If it was an orange, I bet it was one of those easy peeling oranges. Uh, But we just don't know. So you're free to pick whatever fruit you'd want. I do just find it significant that humanity was tested at the very beginning with a test having to do with food, with eating. And when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, the first temptation that came to him, at least according to Luke's account, was the temptation having to do with making stones into bread to satisfy Jesus's hunger when he was obeying God, his father, by fasting. Jesus was tested in regard to food, and so were Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Jesus truly is the second Adam who won the victory where Adam failed. But as far as what specifically the fruit was of the Garden of Eden, we're just not told, so we can just say we don't know. 
Thank you for that question, Susan. Let me go to the next question. Uh, I'm going to read your second name because it looks like a little easier to pronounce. Uh, Andanian. Andanian asks this question. What are some strategies for combating spiritual warfare? It seems like the more I witness to the Lord for my family, the more physical issues I have now battling COVID. Well, uh, Adonian, I'm sorry to hear that you're battling COVID right now. And Lord, right now, in the name of Jesus, we pray for our Christian friend, Adonian, and we ask that you would heal them and bring them strength to their body in Jesus' name. I hope that's helped you and that God answers that prayer, Adonian. But let me just uh, tell you some uh, basic principles for spiritual warfare. There's so much we could go on to. And if you look at our website, EnduringWord.com, in the audio section, I I don't have this on video. Maybe someday I'll record it for a YouTube channel. But in our audio section, I have a series on spiritual warfare that walks through that famous Ephesians 6 passage, and that might be helpful for you. But let me just give you a basic principle. I think that effectiveness in spiritual warfare begins with surrender and submission to God. We find this in James where he says, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. But before he says that, he says, submit to God, resist the devil and he'll flee. Adonai, make a conscious surrender to God and especially to see if the Holy Spirit would be speaking to you about anything, any issue in your life. Surrender to God. We also find an interesting thing in 1 Peter chapter 5, and I know this is fresh on my mind because I just taught it last night at the church where I attend and I'm a teaching pastor at Calvary Chapel, Santa Barbara. At our midweek study, I taught through 1 Peter chapter 5, and he talks about resisting the devil who goes about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. But right before that, he talks about our surrender and our submission to God. So, submit to God, then resist the devil. Stand against him. Stand against his lies. Stand against his deception. Stand against his persistence. Stand against whatever violence uh, that he may do in this world. Stand against Satan and his lies and his works and just continue to stand. Persistence is a great benefit in spiritual warfare. Just to be able to say, God helping me, I won't give up. God strengthening me, I will not give up. I will receive the Lord's strength and I will continue to battle. This is something that I have observed. Now, we know this to be biblically true, that obviously, obviously, Satan is not God. He's not a rival God. Um, He's not God's equal. He's not God's opposite. Satan is a finite being, and every demonic spirit that is in allegiance to Satan and, and a vessel, a tool of his, every principality and power, they are finite beings with, check this out, limited resources. Therefore, when it is clear to Satan and his allies, if we want to call his demonic spirits his allies, when it is clear to Satan and his allies that they cannot win, so to speak, they will redeploy their resources somewhere else. So often, an important part of our spiritual warfare is just simply God helping us. We can never do this on our own strength, but God helping us to stand strong and persistent. I heard of a teacher uh, say this once. Uh, I think it was the teacher, John Corson, but I didn't hear from this directly. A friend quoted it to me. He said, sometimes we get too hung up on terminology where the most important thing is determinology. In other words, being determined. And that is a huge asset. So surrender to God, draw on the Lord's strength, resist the devil, and be in it for the long haul. Once that's clear to Satan and his agents, they will lessen their attack and redeploy their resources elsewhere. Thank you for that question there, uh, Adonion. Next question comes from Jordan. <clears throat> Will you consider doing an audio or preached commentary of Proverbs, Love the Book? Okay, Jordan, yes. I mean, obviously, I have a commentary on Proverbs. 
I have it both online. You can go online, EnduringWord.com, or Blue Letter Bible, blb.org, and look at my Proverbs commentary. You can also get it in print, because many of my online commentaries, we don't have the whole thing in print yet, but we're working on that slowly. Um, but as far as audio or video teaching on Proverbs, I just don't have it yet. And Jordan, I'm just going to be honest with you. It's probably going to be a while until I get to it. Uh, so I would like to do it. I would love to have audio or video teaching on every verse of the Bible. But I just have to say, it's a very busy season for me. And I don't have as much time as I would hope to, to get here in my recording studio and teach verse by verse through books of the Bible. I, I want to make a start with that, with the book of Genesis. Uh, but again, it's just a matter of being able to find the time to do that. Thank you for that question there, Jordan. Next question comes from John, who asked this question. Please explain Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 2, with regard to how we should communicate with God. I hope I haven't been rambling like a crazy person, but I'd love to invoke the name of the Lord often. Okay, here's Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 2. Do not be rash with your mouth, and do not let your heart utter anything hastily before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be you. Okay, John, well, let me explain to you uh, the context of Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 2. What he's speaking of there is in the context of making oaths before God. You can just look, look at my commentary on Ecclesiastes chapter 5 if you're interested in that. But really what he's speaking about is the practice of making oaths. And especially in regard to that, don't make hasty oaths before God. Now, this was more of a common practice among the Jews of biblical times, uh, but it's still a practice among people of many various religions. But Christians can do this. Lord, I promise. Lord, I vow. The writer of Ecclesiastes, speaking by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, whoa, take it easy with that. Don't make promises before God that you won't or can't fulfill. That's a very important principle. Don't make, because God will hold you to your promises. And if you've made an unwise promise to God, again, look up my commentary on Ecclesiastes chapter 5. You'll see where I speak about it there. But if you've made unwise or unfulfillable promises before God, repent before him about it. Confess this sin. It's a sin. You need to confess it before him and make it right with him. But it's not a light thing to make promises before God and to not fulfill them. Now, your question seems to be about communicating with God, and your emphasis in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 2 seems to be on, let your words be few. John, it's true that we shouldn't think that the length of our prayers impresses God. Sometimes we think that it impresses God if we pray a long time. Sometimes we think that it impresses God if our prayers are eloquent. You know, maybe if they're prayed in King James English or whatever tradition religious speak might be in your particular language. But no, it's not the length of our prayers that impresses God. It's not the uh, eloquence of our prayers that impresses God. You could say really that it's the weight of our prayers that impresses God. The heart, the faith that is behind them, the trust in God himself and in God's promises. So it's not wrong to pray for a long time. It's better than a lot of other things that you could be doing. But don't think that God is impressed by the length of your prayers. God is impressed not by the length, not by the eloquence, but you could say, so to speak, by the weight of our prayers and our true trust in him. Hope that's helpful for you there, John, and thank you for your question. Our next question comes from Jennifer, who asks, when and why did the children of Israel switch from wearing ropes to putting dust on their heads during times of mourning. Um, Jennifer, I'm not sure what you mean by wearing ropes, because what I recall is that here were some traditional customs of Jewish mourning. They would rip or tear their clothes. Look, clothes were a very valuable commodity in the ancient world. And uh, 
it was something you would only do under great distress. So they would tear their clothes. They would wear what's called sackcloth. I, I don't know where the connection is with a rope there, but sackcloth is a rough garment, kind of like a burlap bag. And it's unpleasant. It makes you uncomfortable. It's itchy. It's not pleasant to wear. It's a way to afflict yourself. And they would put either dust or ashes upon their air, hair, upon their head to communicate that they don't really care about their appearance. The, the whole thing was, I don't care about my comfort. I don't care about my looks. I don't care about those things. I'm so consumed with grief that those other things that would normally concern me don't concern me. Now, there are still Jewish people, especially among the Orthodox, that carry out some of these practices today. But largely, many Jewish people today would say, these are customs that express mourning from an ancient time. We have different customs today. Sometimes people today will wear black as an expression of mourning. Sometimes they'll wear a black ribbon. Sometimes they'll do other things. They'll have a wake, that whatever it might be. So the reason why some Jewish people don't do those things today is because they just believe that the customs of mourning of the ancient times aren't necessarily reflected in modern times. But you should know that there are at least some Jewish people, especially among the Orthodox, who do carry out these same kind of customs today. Hope that's helpful for you there. Uh, Jennifer. Next question comes from Barry, who asks, Peter said not to put a yoke upon the Gentiles that we can't bear. Why does Paul accuse Peter of hypocrisy in Galatians chapter 2? Um, Acts chapter 15 verse 10 says, now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? Okay, let me explain to you the confrontation in Galatians chapter 2 between Paul, the apostle, and Peter, the apostle. Basically, Peter, against his better judgment, this was part of it, Peter knew better. And the verse you're quoting from Acts chapter 15 kind of reflects how Peter knew better. Peter knew that Jewish, excuse me, that Gentile people do not need to become Jewish before they can become Christians. This was a big debate in the early church. It was something that had to be figured out, and God revealed through the apostles how to figure this out. That basically, one did not have to go through Moses in order to become a Christian. A Gentile could go straight to Jesus. They didn't have to go to Moses first and then to Jesus. They could go straight to Jesus. Now, Peter knew this. He knew better. But basically, when Peter was in Antioch visiting there, under social pressure from some Christians from a Jewish background who were somewhat legalistic in their approach to the Christian life, Christians from a Jewish background who had not actually agreed with the principle that Gentiles don't need to become uh, Jews before they become Christians, and that they have full standing in the body of Christ. Under social pressure from them, Peter went back on what he knew was true. Now look, it's easy for us to point the finger at Peter, to condemn him, but haven't many of us done similar things? Haven't many of us done or said things that we knew were not right, but we did it because of social pressure that was upon us? That's what Peter did, and Paul confronted him about that. So, you're pointing out, Barry, that there was an inconsistency in Peter, the Peter of Acts chapter 15 doesn't seem to be the same Peter that Paul rebuked in Galatians chapter 2. And Barry, I just said, you're absolutely right. And that's what Paul was calling him on. Paul was rebuking him over his lack of consistency. So thank you for that question there, Barry. Next question comes from Thomas, who asks, 
Is there any remembrance of the lost when we get to heaven? Thomas, let me say that uh, the Bible does not specifically tell us. Well, there's some hints that would suggest no. For example, of the heavenly state in the book of Revelation, it is said uh, that all those old things have passed away. God makes all things new in the new heavens and the new earth. Is that an indication? Maybe. But there's no verse that specifically tells us whether or not God's people in heaven, in their resurrected glory, have any recognition or remembrance of the lost. So we just can't say. I think there's a general principle, and we need to come back to again and again, that we should not be dogmatic. We should not be certain where the Bible is silent. Now, I I think it's okay for us to speculate from time to time and to just say, well, the Bible doesn't exactly say this, but I think it could be this way based on this, and that's fine, as long as we understand that we're speculating. So, Thomas, I I just can't tell you with any um, firm way, one way to another, uh, because the Bible doesn't specifically speak about it. If anything, there's a few hints that we would not but we can't say for certain, at least not to my knowledge. If there's a verse somewhere or a passage in the Bible that I'm forgetting about, I invite anybody to help us out with that, but not that I'm aware of. Okay, next question comes from Ita, who asks, what does it mean that Jesus Christ brought grace and truth? John chapter 1, verse 17. John chapter 1, verse 17 says, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Ita, this is a wonderful thing. It means that Jesus came showing the love and the grace and the power of God that was in a way beyond anything shown in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Scriptures, through the law of Moses. Listen, the law of Moses is good. The law of Moses is important. The law of Moses has much to teach us, but it can never make us right with God. We can never become right with God by our law obedience. We become right with God by receiving the righteousness that Abraham received by faith, that David received by faith, that all God's people under the new covenant received by faith. That is the basis, the standing for our relationship with God. Not what we do but what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. That is the revelation of grace and truth. Now, God revealed, and it was important for him to reveal, and it was an important step in God's unfolding plan of the ages to reveal the law through Moses. But there was a greater revelation of grace and truth through Jesus Christ. Now, I say that word carefully. A greater revelation of grace and truth. Because... We should not act or think as if there was no grace. There was no mercy in the law. No, there was the love and grace and mercy of God expressed in the law of Moses. But simply, there had to be a greater, a perfected expression of it in the person and work of Jesus Christ. I hope that's helpful for you there, Itta, and it's a wonderful thing to think about. Uh, Aqua asks, is your commentary being done in Urdu. Uh, Yes, it is. We have a limited work in Urdu, and I don't see it on our website, but we have commentators, uh, we have translators in Urdu working on it, and so I hope someday that we will be able to post that on our website, uh, commentary work being done in Urdu. Uh, These commentary works take a long time, but I know that we've made a start in Urdu And uh, we would love to strengthen Urdu-speaking believers in Pakistan and in other places uh, to strengthen believers there and to help seekers, those who are seeking information about the Bible as well. So, yes, we do have translation projects ongoing in Urdu. We just haven't had enough to post online. Generally, the way we do it is once we get four or five uh, books of the Bible, commentary on books of the Bible translated, then we put it up on the website. 
And so that's usually what we do. Um, I don't know if I can remember all the languages that we have commentary works being done in right now. Let me see if I can remember. We have Spanish, of course, and that's our normal. We have a uh, last month we had 600,000 page views on our Spanish website. So we uh, praise the Lord for that. We have Spanish, Arabic, Chinese, uh, Hindi, Urdu, German, French, Portuguese, Italian, Russian is a significant work of ours, uh, Farsi, uh, Kurdish languages. And um, I know there's some that I'm overlooking. Uh, so I think it's about 15 in total projects that we have. And uh, again, when we get enough content in any particular language, then we like to put it online. So we hope to continue to do that. Your prayers are appreciated uh, along those lines. The next question comes from Tom or Thomas. He asks, what are your top three New Testament commentaries, commentators, or just all-time favorites? Okay, Tom. Well, um, Thomas, I, I would say... Number one, um, one of my favorite Bible commentators is Leon Morris. Wow, do I love Leon Morris's work. Let me go back here, see if I can find it. Leon Morris. I don't see it right behind me, but I love Leon Morris's commentaries. Uh, and especially his commentary on the Gospel of John is magnificent. So there's Leon Morris, F.F. Bruce. Here's F.F. Bruce on uh, the Gospel of John. There's F.F. Bruce. Um, other commentators I really like, I, I like some of the old, old guys. Adam Clark, John Trapp, uh, not quite as old, but G. Campbell Morgan. These are guys that are of a great benefit to me. Um, he's only has a couple commentaries out, but I, I've really appreciated William Newell's work on Romans and Hebrews as well. A uh, commentator that I'm just kind of getting to know, I've only read one of his works, but I was really impressed with it, going through the Gospel of Luke. Uh, C. Marvin Pate, I, I found this one to be very good. Um, John Stott is a commentator that I really enjoy. Uh, so those are just some that come off the top of my head. Leon Morris, F.F. Bruce, G. Camel Morgan, Adam Clark, John Trapp, I always like to read whatever I can on Spurgeon, what he preached through a particular passage. Many of Charles Spurgeon's sermons are brilliant exposition of the text. Other times, it's just sort of a launching point, but I love reading whatever I can from Spurgeon. Um, so again, I hope that's helpful for you there, Tom. Now, I do want to say that I'm probably not in complete agreement with any particular Bible commentator. So it, it doesn't do any good for somebody to say, well, F.F. Um, Bruce says this, and you disagree with it. What's up with that? Well, I'll just say, well, I, I don't agree with any particular Bible. I don't expect anybody to agree with my Bible commentary 100%. Although you probably should. I mean, anyway, you understand that I say that in jest. But I, I, I don't think that we read Bible commentaries to tell us everything we should believe. We read Bible commentaries to help us understand the Bible better and um, no commentary is perfect, just like no teacher is perfect. The commentary is just teaching in a written form. So I hope that's helpful for you there, Thomas. Next question comes from Lupi, who asks, um, I heard a pastor teach that in Romans chapter 7, verses 19 through 25, Paul was referring to himself before he was a believer. I've never heard that before. Uh, Lupi, you're putting your finger on something that is uh, an interesting point of contention. Uh, in Romans chapter 7, Paul has this marvelous section where he talks about the agony of his wanting to obey God, but not being able to. Uh, verse 19, for the good that I will to do, I do not do, but the evil that I will not to do, that I practice. Now, if I do what I will not to do, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law that evil is present within me, the one who wills to do good, for I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, on and on. And a question that Bible commentators deal with is, was Paul writing this about his experience as a believer, his struggles as a believer, 
Or was Paul writing this about his struggles as someone who had not yet believed, who had not yet trusted in Jesus Christ? I believe that he's writing that about struggles as a believer. He speaks about a love for the law of God and a love for the will of God that I think is normally only present in a believer. So, that, that would just simply be my, and, and what I find so remarkable of that section in Romans chapter 7, when, when I teach on I love to point this out. How many times does Paul refer to himself in that passage? Listen, over and over again, off the top of my head, I can't remember. You could look it up in my commentary, but it, something like 40 times in those verses. It's I, me, my. I think Paul wrote this in a over-the-top, exaggerated way to really make it clear that his focus is on self, not upon Jesus. In Romans chapter 7, he never finds victory until he takes the focus off himself and puts it upon Jesus. And that's the true for every believer. When our focus is upon ourself, we will often be frustrated in our struggle against sin. But when our focus is upon Jesus Christ, we will find victory. So, um, I believe that the struggle in Romans chapter 7 has to do with a self-focused believer, not someone before they come to Christ. And, and I, I'll be honest with you. I find the arguments for trying to say that this was Paul as an unbeliever or before he became a believer, I find those arguments unpersuasive. So, I would disagree with that person. I, look, it's not like it's some big point. It's just sort of something to talk about. Uh, but uh, I believe that believers can have what you might call a Romans 7 struggle as long as their focus is on self and not on Jesus. Hope that's helpful for you there, Lupe. Next question comes from N, who asks, When Jesus in John chapter 13 says, I've given you an example to follow, do as I have done to you, after washing the disciples' feet, is that literally for us to do, or is it more a symbol of humility for us? And I think the example there was not literally so much of washing somebody's feet, but of humble service towards one another. Look, in that culture, and there's still cultures in the world like this today, dirty feet were sort of a big problem. People wore sandals, there weren't roads, people were always walking in the dirt and the muck and such outside. Dirty feet were a hygiene problem in a home. It was customary to wash people's feet every time they came within your home. Now, for us, carrying that out would really be something symbolic. It would kind of be like cleaning somebody's toilet finding a way to humbly serve other people. So I think it's fine if Christians want to have foot washing ceremonies. That's fine. But really, it is just kind of a ceremony. For them in the world of the first century, it wasn't a ceremony. It was a common daily practice. So uh, I don't think the two things are analogous for us to do it today. If we were to do it today in most all of our churches, it would be sort of a ceremonial thing not necessarily carrying out the practice of humbly serving one another. And that is something that Jesus is very concerned that we do one for another. Finally, a question from Katie. This will be our last question that we take. Uh, is my family, who are Catholics, saved? They do believe in Jesus as their Lord and Savior, but they also do all the ritual stuff in the Catholic Church, like pray the rosary and confess to a priest. Uh, are they saved? Well, listen, Katie, I, I can't say from a distance whether or not your family is saved, but listen, I, I certainly believe that it is definitely possible for Roman Catholics to be genuinely born again and have a true faith. Um, the official teaching of the Roman Catholic Church is wrong in many areas and can lead someone away from a trust in Jesus and have somebody trust in the church more than Jesus. That's wrong. That's dangerous. But we all know that there are many Roman Catholics who do have a genuine trust in Jesus. 
they really do rely on him despite some of the official teachings of the Roman Catholic Church. And I would say that this is true of other church traditions as well. We are not saved, nor are we damned by our membership in a particular group. Nobody's going to be able to wave a membership card to the Roman Catholic Church and say, Jesus, I'm saved because I'm a member of the Roman Catholic Church, or I'm a member of an Orthodox Church, or I'm a member of a Protestant Church, or to speak from my own church tradition, which is from the Protestant tradition, a member of a Calvary Chapel. None of those are your salvation. We are not saved or damned by belonging or not belonging to a particular group. We're saved by our individual relationship of trust and faith in Jesus Christ, by looking away from sin and self and putting our focus upon Jesus. That's how I would answer that. And if that's where your family is at, praise the Lord. I think it would be beneficial for their spiritual growth. I'll just be very honest here. I I don't mean to offend my Roman Catholic brothers and sisters, but I think it would be beneficial for their spiritual growth to no longer be in the Roman Catholic Church. But I, I, I would not question their salvation if they have a true, sincere faith in Jesus, not in themselves, not in their church, not in their priest, but their faith is truly in Jesus and what he did to save them, not what they could do to save themselves. Then I wouldn't question their salvation. Well, that's it for today. Thank you for that question, Katie. And thank you, everybody who has joined us for today's question and answer time. So pleased that you could join us and God willing. And if we live, I'll be with you next week and we can do it again. I don't know what the lead question will be next week, but we'll see what God might particularly lead us. And uh, I again want to thank you for your prayers. Thank you for your support of what we do at Enduring Word. I think God is doing good things through our ministry and I just long for him to continue to do them. So thank you for all your prayers, for all your support. Hope to see you next week. Thank you so much for joining us. God bless you. And again, we'll see you next week. Bye-bye. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.